Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday evening service. Well done for, for making it on this warm summer evening. Well done for putting um, the Lord before women's football. Um, for some, you might think that's not a contest. Um, if you do know the score uh, later on, keep it to yourselves for those of us watching it on catch-up. Um, there's also, as you know, there's a lot of people away this uh, weekend. Group have gone up to Keswick, so it'd be good to pray for them uh, over the course of this week that uh, they do feel built up in their faith um, by that, that ministry up there. We may be few in number, but the main thing is that God is with us, isn't he? Um, and we look forward to spending time with him uh, this evening. Well, we're pleased to have uh, Cal preaching us for, for us again this evening, doing a short series of three on two kings, and then we're carrying on in, in August on that. Uh, he's heading up to Keswick uh, tomorrow to join uh, Tash and the rest of the gang. So um, it's great that he's been able to preach tonight, though. As we do start, let me read from Psalm 103 that we can just gather our thoughts and focus on who we are here to, to praise this evening and what he's done for us. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray. Father God, we come together this evening to give you the praise that is due your holy name, We come not just to give a a token sense of worship. We want to praise you from our inmost being. With our whole lives, with our, our thoughts, our feelings, our convictions, we want to give you the praise and to remember all that you've done for us. We are humbled to think of why you should want to do that when we so often are unfaithful to you, we so often let you down. But you have forgiven us. In Jesus Christ, you've made that forgiveness possible. You've healed us. You've healed us in our souls. You've redeemed our lives. You've crowned us with love and compassion. We praise you for your mercy towards us. We praise you that you give us the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So we do pray this evening that you would renew us, encourage us, revive us, we pray, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm going to invite Lisa up to the front to ask uh, a couple of questions about what's uh, going on over the summer. Um, first of all, Lisa, I think probably a lot of people know that you work for Christians of Sport, but um, just um, explain to us again, what do Christians of Sport do? What are they about? What's their purpose uh, in life? <laughs> Good question. Um, so Christians in Sport um, exist to reach the world of sport for Christ, um, to help Christians who play sport to 
help them to live out their faith in their world of sport and for non-Christian sports people to hear about Jesus. Um, doing that through universities, um, sporting churches, elite athletes, and through young people at sports. Brilliant. And camps is what you're going on this summer. Do you want to yep. tell us a little bit about those camps, where you're going and what you're doing? Yep, so they've already started. Um, they started um, a few weeks ago back in well Dublin and then Perth. Um, Belfast one and Moncton one in Bath are starting right now. Um, and then I'm going to Belfast on Saturday and then to Repton, which is near Derby, um, to do those camps um, back to back. Um, they're for secondary school age young people um, who love sport, um, who play in clubs and teams um, and who are either Christians or exploring the Christian faith, warm to the Christian faith. Um, maybe they've been brought along by a friend. Um, they'll spend pretty much five hours a day playing sport, um, a few different things, and then they'll have a chance in the morning and the evening and at lunchtime to either hear a talk about the gospel um, or to have a Bible study with their team. Um, the evenings are more focused on the gospel, so explaining the gospel clearly to young people, um, and the mornings um, are more kind of how does sport and faith fit together and what does it look like to live out faith in sport. Great. You've done these camps quite a few times, haven't you? Tell it, what are you hoping to see God do through these camps this, this summer and um, how are you hoping that he'll be able to use you for that? Um, tell us a bit, yeah, what are your expectations? Um, we can pray big prayers. Um, we'd love non-Christian young sports people to become Christians um, or for them to learn more about Jesus and then to go back to hear more from friends or um, maybe they do go to a church. Um, so we'd love young people to become Christians um, and we'd love Christian young people to grow in their faith to um, be more confident in sharing the gospel with their friends who they play sport with um, and to see that sport can be a mission field sport can be a place where you can live as a Christian share Jesus um, even though it can be really hard Um, so yeah I'd appreciate prayer when I'm at Repton the second camp I'll have a group of about eight um, girls secondary school age girls um, to kind of look after throughout the week and to share the Bible with them to chat to them, get to know them. Um, and then the first week at Belfast, I'll be with the trainee leaders. So these are young people who have, they're too old to be at camp, um, but they're kind of learning how to become a leader um, and they'll have their own training scheme. That's in 2 Timothy. Um, so I value prayer for those different roles. Um, and then also there's four young people from LCBC coming to Repton for three for the first time. Um, so great to pray for them um, as they come, that they'd have a brilliant week and grow in their faith as well. Who are those four? I understand. Um, so those four are Sam McIntosh, um, Lydia Wallace, um, Jen Ashton, and Immy McCaig. Great. So that's the four. Great. Thanks very much, Lisa. We're going to pray now um, and we'll include Christians of Sport in our prayers. So let's come to, to the Lord. Lord God, we praise you for your greatness, for your love, and for your power. Your power to create us and everything in the world around us. Your power to redeem us from slavery to sin. Your power to raise Jesus from the dead and exalt him at your right hand. We praise you that when he comes again, we too will be exalted with him. Lord, when we see the world around us, we see so much that is wrong with it. There is so much greed and selfishness and corruption and immorality. And we know that there's sin in our own hearts. But we thank you that you have saved us from our sin through the death of Jesus. We thank you that you've adopted us into your family. 
that we can call you Father. We are sorry when we still let you down, when we dishonor your name, when we fail to trust in your goodness and in your power. Forgive us, we pray. We pray that you would use us as your instruments of change to do your work. We pray for Lisa this, uh, this week, other couple of other camps she's going to be going to. And we, Lord, we pray that you would use her. We think of this uh, group of young girls she'll be looking after at Repton. Lord, if there are those amongst that group are not yet Christians, Lord, we pray that through that week, through what they hear, that you would move their hearts to give their lives to, to Christ. For those that are already Christians, Lord, we pray you would help them grow stronger in their faith, in their confidence in you, that they would go away from that camp with a greater desire to to share their faith with others um, with whom they play sports, with whom they go to school, others maybe in their families. So Lord bless Lisa in that role. We pray for that other camp at Belfast with those trainee leaders. Lord, we thank you for these young people who have got to that stage where they're still walking with you. They want to um, serve you in leadership roles in whatever that might look like. So Lord, we pray that that camp would help them to grow into that role you have for them. And Lord, we pray for the work of Christians in sport more widely as they seek to help Christians use their, their sporting talents to honor Christ in the way they play and the way they share Christ with those with whom they play. Lord, we pray for our own church family and those um, uh, young people attending the Christian support camps. We pray for each one of them, that uh, you would uh, be alongside them, you would be speaking to them and helping them grow closer to you during that time. We pray for others attending different camps. We pray for those of our church family at Keswick this week, that through the teaching they receive, through that Christian fellowship, that you would encourage them, you would equip them to better serve you in the situations in which you have placed them. Father, we pray for our families over this summer period where children are off school. Thank you for the resources that they have been given. We pray they would, they would use them to ensure that Jesus is at the center of their families during this time, whether they're at home or whether they're able to, to get away. May Jesus still be at the center. So be with our parents, we pray. Uh, help them to be faithful uh, mothers and fathers in those families. Father, we pray for our world and bring before you this evening Pastor Julian and the church in Romania. We thank you for his and Lydia's wonderful gift of hospitality. We pray that as they continue to open up their home to friends and strangers, including those from Ukraine, that people would see you in their acts of sacrificial love with all their various uh, demands on their time we pray you'd give them wisdom to prioritize them what time and resources they have we we do also pray lord for the uh, the center that uh, you have graciously given them thank you for the uh, stage it's got to and we pray for the completion of the remaining rooms that uh, it will become a new place of worship in that city it will become a new centre of outreach to that area. So Lord, may you bring that to completion and use it for your glory's sake. 
And Father, we thank you for, uh, for Cal, for all he has learnt about you this past year, for the way you are guiding and leading him to where you want him to serve you. And as he comes uh, to preach to us shortly, we pray you'd help him to preach clearly and faithfully. And help us, Lord, to concentrate on your word, on what you have to say to each one of us as you seek to build us up in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing again of the Lord's uh, compassion and his power to save. After that, Liz will come up and bring us our reading from uh, 2 Kings 3. Then Cal will come up and preach. So the reading is 2 Kings and chapter 3. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, explained the king of Israel, has the Lord, co- has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Japhat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. 
This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms, was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Ker Haraseth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Thank you, Liz, for reading. Uh, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, why don't I pray uh, before we get stuck into this passage together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that we can spend time together this evening um, hearing from it. Lord, we pray that you would be speaking to us through it, Lord, that we would be um, ready to receive whatever you have to say to us, Lord, to have hearts that are willing to be challenged, hearts that are willing to be encouraged. And Lord, that as we leave here this evening, we would be um, excited to go and live for you um, in all that you have planned for us this week. Uh, Lord, to be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, uh, if you weren't here last week or you can't remember and need a little bit of refresher, let's just have a little think first about we, what we looked at uh, last week. Uh, we are in the middle of a turbulent time in the history of God's people. Uh, the kingdom of Israel has been split in two, uh, into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and the kingdom of Israel has been ruled by a succession of really awful kings. Uh, and in response to that, God had sent prophets, uh, these men who he used to speak through to the people, uh, to warn them of the waywardness of their lives, to call them back to him. We saw that uh, the main prophet who God did this with was Elijah. Uh, and last week we saw how uh, Elijah then passed on his baton, so to speak, to Elisha. Um, we saw that whole scenario. Uh, we saw that God had chosen Elisha to be his successor. But the slight difference in their ministry was Elijah was there to, to warn the people, to call the p- people back. But as we saw when we look back to 1 Kings chapter 19, Elisha was one who was going to bring judgment. Uh, judgment particularly on the house of Ahab, who was one of Israel's awful kings. 
We saw that Elijah was taken up into heaven and Elisha took up the mantle of his ministry. We saw him start off with those first two miracles, uh, fixing the water source uh, at Jericho and then bringing down judgment through the bears um, on the group of youths. So we've had kind of this this big introduction to Elisha's ministry uh, and now we're going to see how things continue, how the story goes on. Uh, and what we're going to see in this chapter, as we've had it read, is, is a big international conflict that the people of Israel were involved in. And it's a conflict which looks like it's set for disaster. It's a conflict that looks like it's not going to end well for God's people. So let's look together at these signs of disaster. There's four of them. Here's the first one. First, there's an evil king. We got it on the screen. Is that great? Um, an evil king. Let's read these first few verses when we start at verse 1. Uh, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So here we get introduced to King Joram. Joram is king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And it seems like, as has been the pattern, well, it seems like he's been another awful king. Look how he's described in verse 2. He he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, it's not as, as bad as his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel, but it's still bad. If you had your top trumps of awful kings, Ahab would be right at the top. But Joram wasn't far behind. Joram did get rid of this stone of Baal, this symbol of idol worship. But he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Now, that's a pretty common kind of refrain that we find in the book of one and two kings. Kind of all the new kings are pitted against Jeroboam. They're kind of evaluated up against him. We're told that Jeroboam is the king who, who created these two temples we mentioned last week that where the people were told to go and worship the golden calf, one in Bethel and one in Dan. He encouraged the people to, to worship there rather than go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. Now he did plenty of other awful things, but, but that's the key one. And look how he's described. He's described to have caused Israel to sin. That's a pretty serious accusation, isn't it? To have caused a, a whole nation to sin. And just to show the, the impact that, that, a, that a poor spiritual leader can have on a group of people. He led thousands upon thousands of people away from the Lord. And, and, and that's something that we, we see today as well, don't we? You know, we see these big name preachers and, and leaders who, who over time preach a, a false message. Who end up leading vast swathes of people away from, from the truth of the gospel. We see that in, in mainstream denominations in this country as well. All it takes is, is a leader or a group of leaders in power to, to go off in the wrong direction and end up leading people away with them. It's, it's tragic at times. We see people being led astray and into danger. And so it is a, a huge responsibility to be a leader, a spiritual leader. And so let's make sure that we, we keep praying for our leaders, for our pastors and for our elders. They have such a, a huge responsibility Let's pray that they would be faithful to, to lead us uh, and faithful across the churches to lead people in the way the Bible says. You see, we all have a, a responsibility too. You know, in, in our own ways, we're all spiritual leaders. In our families, parents, 
grandparents. Now it's worth asking the question, are, are you or we by our action or inaction causing others in our family to, to wander into sin? No, and we know that the human heart is simple, it's prone to sin, so sometimes there's nothing that we can do. But it's a real challenge, isn't it, to try our, to try our best to, to lead, to encourage those around us to follow God and not to be led away. It's a real, it's a real challenge and it's a question to ask, is, it, is that something we are guilty of doing, to lead others into sin? So we're told that Joram here, even though he wasn't as, as bad as his parents, he was still, a, he was still an awful king. Uh, and so straight away, that should be kind of ringing alarm bells for this whole scenario to follow. That evil kings are, are very rarely, if at all, successful in the Bible. And so we've got this king. Uh, but let's then read on and see why there's this big conflict going on. Let's pick up the story at verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. So here we're introduced to Misha, the king of Moab, which is one of Israel's neighbors. And have a look at the map here. You can see it there. So there's Moab there close to Israel uh, and Judah. So it's a close by country. Now, at the time, Israel were the, they were kind of the, the superpower in the region at that point. And so in order to keep the peace, uh, Moab were, were paying this tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams, right? And that's a, that's a pretty serious cost to be paying, right? That's no little tribute. This would have been something that would have been hurting them massively having to give this. And so as soon as they begin to hear of this unrest, once King Ahab dies, you can see Misha thinking, oh great, here, here's my chance now. Here's my chance to, to get away from those pesky Israelites to stop having to pay this tribute. And so he rebels. Now Joram gets worried. He, he mobilizes the nation to try and take back control. And as he does, he, he asks the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, for help. But that's what brings us to the next sign of disaster. We see there's this evil king, but we also have a strong sense of deja vu here. Uh, If we've been reading through one and two kings uh, from start to finish, uh, we would have seen that this request of military help from a king of Israel to the king of Judah has happened before. Uh, You might want to flip back a couple of pages to 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, And what we see is Ahab the previous king of Israel, asking Jehoshaphat for help, this time to defeat the kingdom of Aram. Up at the top of the map, we'll see it. See, Jehoshaphat agrees to this joint venture, and in in 1 Kings 22, he says in verse 4 to Ahab, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then if we Flick back forward to 2 Kings chapter 3. How does Jehoshaphat respond to Joram's request in verse 7? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. You see, he replies in exactly the same way to a very similar request. You see, deja vu. Well, back in uh, 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat um, asks Ahab to seek the counsel of the Lord. Uh, whether this, this venture to go against Aram is the, is the right thing to do. 
Uh, and what follows, just to summarize, is this really funny exchange where um, Ahab brings all these um, false prophets to him. Uh, and they all say, oh, yes, you're going to succeed. It's going to be great. You go for it. Um, Jehoshaphat's not particularly convinced by these other prophets. So he asks that same question. Is, it, is there a prophet of the Lord here? Um, and Ahab says, well, there is, but um, I hate him. I don't want to listen to him because all he does is uh, prophesy against me. Uh, so eventually, um, with a bit of um, input, uh, they go to this prophet, Micaiah, and he says that Ahab will die if he goes out on this mission against Aram. And of course, well, Ahab doesn't listen to the prophet who he hates. Um, they put together this scheme to try and keep him safe, but ultimately it fails. Ahab and Jehoshaphat go to war against Aram, and Ahab is killed. And Jehoshaphat only just narrowly escapes with his life. So you see, this, this scenario has happened before, right? We see it just replayed here in this chapter. Ahab and his family ended in disaster before, and the same thing's happening here. And now you'd at least expect Jehoshaphat, having gone through it, to, to maybe be a bit reticent to join in, to, to take a step back. But he doesn't. He just plows straight along with what Joram says. See, it doesn't seem like a good sign, that. See, these warning signs are, are getting brighter and brighter. So we've got a bad king. We've got this strong sense of deja vu. And it gets worse. See, the third thing is we see them have some seriously poor planning. And let's see what happens next. Let's pick up from verse 8. By what route shall we attack? Joram asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So they set out, managing to, to bring the king of Edom along with them, thinking they'll be sneaky and they'll kind of attack round the back. So they set out from Judah through Edom uh, and they looked to come and attack uh, into Moab this way when they would have been expecting Israel to come through here. They travel through the desert of Edom. But then what happens? Verse 9, after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Now, <laughs> they've run out of water, which is not particularly surprising, is it? Wandering through the desert for a week, you kind of assume there would be a lack of water. And no water obviously means disaster for an army, for the people, for their animals. It's in a pretty bad state. It's a really poorly planned expedition. They can't even keep themselves alive, let alone be ready to fight a battle against the neighbours. But Joram's reaction to discovering this, they've run out of water, is really interesting. Look at verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? You can see he's, he's outraged. So he's, he's claiming that God has been the one that's brought them together. And then he's about to let them be destroyed at the hands of their enemies. See, Joram, he clearly understands that He's got this idea that God is sovereign. He's the one that's in control and brought them together. But he just kind of assumes that because they are the people of God, that they're going to be successful in this venture, that, that all is going to go well. And see, so often we are we're guilty of acting a little bit like that as well, aren't we? When we make plans, when, when things are going on in our lives, we, we go off and, and we do it. And it's only then when, when things begin to go a little bit wrong or they're not quite what we expected then we decide to come to the Lord then we decide to ask for his help 
Okay, that's, that's not the way we're called to do things. Draw him such a, a bad example of that here. We, we should come to the Lord first to ask for his help and for guidance before, before doing anything. And we do have a big decision to make, however big or small. We, we don't go just bowling in at 100 miles an hour just expecting that what we're doing is what God wants or that he's going to make this the right thing. No, we, we pray. We come to God humbly. We ask for his guidance and wisdom, not demanding anything, not expecting anything, but knowing that God does hear all of our prayers. And alongside that, we go and we ask the counsel of, uh, of godly friends, brothers and sisters that can also give us good guidance and wisdom. We don't just plow on ourselves. So we see Joram and Jehoshaphat stuck in the desert. Joram's complaining that God hasn't done what he should. But then things look like they're going to get even worse still. Here's the final disaster sign is the presence of Elisha. The assassin is here. Read these next few verses. Let's start at verse 11. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So again, just like in 1 Kings chapter 22, Jehoshaphat asks if there is a prophet and surprise, surprise, Elisha's on the scene. Now we don't really know exactly why he's here. He just sort of turns up. He just happens to be in the area. But seeing Elisha here should again be ringing warning bells. Remember as we saw last week, Elisha was the promised judge. God said he was the one to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. And look who's here. Joram, the son of Ahab. So at this point, we should be thinking, well, is is this it? Is this the moment when judgment comes? Is Elisha here to carry out his mission? It surely sure seems likely. It's all set up here for a big disaster for the army of God's people. Well, they head down to see him. Uh, and Elisha's first res- response is to not even think about getting involved. He tells Joram to, to go back, ask his prophets, his prophets of his father that just agreed with everything he said. But after Joram refuses, Elisha says this, verse 14. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. Clearly, Elisha still has no time for Joram, which is kind of understandable. But because Jehoshaphat, even though um, he's teaming up with this mad other evil king, he's still um, he's still an okay king as far as the kings go. He's saying he's still willing to, to listen to what the Lord has to say on his behalf. Now notice here, Elisha's not promising anything. He's just saying that he will listen to what the Lord has to say. He's not agreeing to anything. So we get to this point here, right? We're thinking, right, here it comes. Here comes the disaster. Everything we've seen up until this point has been pointing towards a huge and embarrassing defeat for God's people. This evil king, this, this sense of deja vu, the fact that they are stuck in the desert with nothing, and that Elisha 
is on the scene. Here we go. Get your popcorn ready. Here's the, here's the big judgment coming. We see, we're going to see something happen next. And it's not what we expect. It's not what we expect at all. It's a huge surprise. We should see all that happens next as a massive surprise. We see a surprising salvation of God's people. We see that Lord speaks through Elisha and says, no, disaster isn't coming. Let's read what it says. Let's start at verse 16. And Elisha says, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. So firstly, God promises that water will flow from the desert. He's going to save them from their current plight there. And does he? Look at verse 20. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It wasn't even like God had just made it rain to see, no, this water just appears flowing from Eden, bringing life back into this army. And God says, well, that's, that's all a little bit too easy, right? Uh, as well as that, I'm going to deliver Moab into your hands. And not, not just in a small way. No, you'll have complete and total victory. It's another big claim. And does it happen? Well, the Moabites come ready to fight, and as they get up in the morning, they think that these rivers um, of water are actually blood flowing from the Israelite camp. You know, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning, flood coming down. And as a, you can kind of understand why these three kings from different nations, if they had a little argument, you could see how it could all break out into a fight. So they think, oh great, this is our moment. We're going to capitalize on this. Let's cash in. And they march to battle. But what happens when they get there? Look at verse 24. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Haraseth was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. It's, it's just total destruction, isn't it? God doesn't just give them a, a narrow victory. He brings them complete victory. It's, it's a real, it is a real surprise, isn't it? This, this seemingly doomed army has gone from almost being dead, stuck in the desert, to this huge and, and, and total military victory. Right? This is not how we should have been expecting things to happen. This is a, a huge twist of events. But the Lord gives them success. And then this last little section, we see the king of Moab has, has one final attempt at winning. He takes these, these 700 swordsmen, he makes a beeline for the king of Edom, but it doesn't work. And then he, he goes on to sacrifice his own son on the city walls. I mean, it's just, it's just horrific, isn't it? It's absolutely brutal. 
awful to see. And I think the reason why this is included is, is to remind us, the readers, that the Moabites weren't just some unfortunate receivers of, of God's judgment here. They weren't just sort of innocent bystanders that happened to get in the way. No, they were an awful a pagan godless people where child sacrifice was, was the norm. See, this, the saving of the Israelites here is, is such a surprise. Right? It, it was never looked like this was going to be an outcome. But they're saved. Saved from a desperate situation into victory. And God has a, a history of doing this for his people. Turning disaster into victory. And doing it in surprising ways. That's what he does. He's, he's done it throughout history. We think of the, the saving of the people from Egypt. We see it through here and we see it most clearly and most beautifully in the gospel through Jesus. See, this is a surprising salvation, but all of Jesus' ministry was a surprise. So he didn't come as the people expected, as a, as a conquering king there to save them from the Romans. No, but he came as a lowly carpenter living in a town in the back end of nowhere. He came and spent time with, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with the sick, with the needy. You know what you would expect the, the king to do? He valued women in a culture that didn't. He, he spoke up against the corrupt religious leaders. His whole ministry was, was surprising. And the fact that he went to die, the fact that he went willingly to the cross to die and that he rose again, I mean, it's just, it's so, so surprising. And to add to that, he did all of that, not just for the people of Israel, but he did it for everyone. He did it for all, both Jew and Gentile. He did that for you and for me. He died to save us from death and to give us eternal life. He hasn't just saved us, he's brought us into something incredible. See, just like God didn't save the people from disaster. But he also brought them into complete victory. Jesus hasn't just saved us from death, but he saved us to a new life now and an eternal life forever, allowing us to share in his victory over sin and death as he rose from the cross. This is something that I know I'm guilty of, and I'm sure we all are, of, of taking this wonderful, surprising news of the gospel for granted. I don't know if you can think back to, to the first time you ever understood this or, or explained the gospel. I, I, I know for me, I was so excited. I, I was buzzing. Wow, Jesus really did do that for me. It, it, it was such a surprise. But, but now, years on, it can feel like when we hear this, it's, Oh, here we go again. Ah, good. I know this. But it doesn't give us that, that excitement and that buzz that it once did. And sometimes we do need to just take a, a step back and, and remind ourselves of just how surprising our salvation is. That while we were all so undeserving of God's mercy and grace, that we were in a desperate situation, that we were on course for destruction, that all the warning signs were there, just like the army here, that Jesus stepped in to save us. 
I know I so often, and I'm sure we all need to be reminded of just how wonderfully surprising and undeserving our salvation is. But you see, for, for Joram here, he isn't saved completely. So God has still promised that judgment will come on him through Elisha. God doesn't just forget about that. And we see down the line in a few weeks' time that that will be the case. So what's God doing here? Well, what God's doing here is he's giving Joram time. In his mercy, he's giving Joram this time to, to turn back, to come back to him, to, to repent of the ways that he has led God's people astray. The judgment is coming, but God's just giving him time. And friends, each and, each and every morning that we wake, each day that we have, where Jesus hasn't returned to judge, is, is a gift. It's a gift of God's mercy and his grace to us. So God, in his goodness, is, is postponing his judgment on the world to, to give more and more people the chance to respond to him, to turn back, to inherit life through Jesus. And it's one of the lines that, that we, I'm sure we've all said, right, that every day is a gift. And, that is, and it's totally true, but what, what is it a gift for? Is my question. Uh, what comes to mind when you say uh, every day is a gift? Do you picture enjoying a day out in, this, in beautiful scenery, uh, spending time with friends and family, doing the things you love, hobbies, traveling, that kind of thing? I know that's what comes to mind for me. But you know, Jesus didn't go through what he did just so that we could enjoy our lives and live happy lives so Jesus died that so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and he wants as many people as possible to experience that so friends will we will we view each day that we have as a gift not just to enjoy all the good things that God has given us but to take to step out in faith, to take up our cross and follow him, to live in a way that points other people to him, to speak wherever the Lord has placed us, to speak of Jesus in our friend groups, in our families, in our workplaces. That's what having each day as a gift is. It gives us time. It gives us the opportunity to share that with those that we love and those that we come in contact with. Because there will be a day when the Lord's patience will come to an end. We saw last week, didn't we, that Jesus will return. And it's a question that we have to ask. Are we living as if that is a reality? It could be tomorrow. Are we doing everything we can to, to make him known, to show others of their, their pressing and, and desperate need for a saviour? It's worth just taking some time to think, how can I do that? How can I make the most of each and every day that God has given me to make him known? So as you've seen through this evening, this, this battle, which looked doomed from the very start, turned into a great victory through nothing but the grace and mercy of God. It's, it's surprising, it's unexpected, but that's just what God does. He brings salvation 
bring salvation to us from darkness and hopelessness through the death of Jesus who brings unexpected salvation. And though we all tell stories, don't we, of, of exciting and surprising things that have happened in our lives. Uh, that promotion at work, a, a surprise party that someone's thrown us, even winning a couple of quid on a scratch card. You know, we love to share those and be excited by that. But those kind of small surprises, how much more shall we rejoice and share the news of our wonderful saviour who brought us salvation when we desperately needed it? Praise God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for your incredible gift of salvation to us. Lord, that even though we are so, so undeserving of it, Lord, that you, that you came. Lord, you came to earth. Lord, you lived a life which no one expected. Lord, you did things no one expected. You, you died as no one expected you would. And then you rose again to show us that we have been brought into something incredible, that we can share in your victory over sin and death. Lord, I pray that you would help us constantly rejoice in this. Lord, that it would never become dull to us. Lord, that each day you would remind us afresh of how, how wonderful it is to be recipients of your salvation. Lord, I pray for, for us all. Lord, that as we go through our lives, we would see each day as a wonderful gift. Lord, a gift to, to live for you, a gift to share you. Lord, because we know that the time is coming when Jesus will return. Lord, I pray that will excite us, but that would motivate us all the more to live lives to honour you and to speak words of the gospel. Lord, help us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Great encouragement uh, tonight, isn't it, to know of that surprising salvation. Um, when things were looking bad, God in his mercy saved us. But also a challenge, isn't it? How do we live our lives in the light of the limited time we have? How are we going to use each day for the glory of God? Let me read some verses from 2 Peter 3 as we close. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Father God, we praise you for your patience. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you that you don't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so, Lord, help us as we go from here with the week ahead to think about how we can lead godly lives as we look to your coming again. How we can use each day to your glory, how we can share the news of salvation 
to a world which is blind to where they're heading. Lord, use us, we pray, to bring salvation to those you've put in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.